Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's show, The Gift of Freedom. I'm your host. My name is Preston Washington. My guest tonight is Cleo Manigo. Mr. Manigo is Associate Political analyst, and also a behavioral health expert. He's the CEO of an organization known as Black Man, Black Man's Exchange, and he's been a frequent contributor and commentator on the News One show on TV One uh, with Roland Martin. Good evening, uh, Mr. Manigo. Uh, good evening. It's Monago, just so you can have Monago. that. Monago. Yes, that's yeah, Monago. Mm-hmm. Monago, thank you. Yes, sure. Uh, tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about um, the Black Man's Exchange. Well, the Black Man's Exchange is an educational affirmation and advocacy organization that was created because, in too many instances, particularly where I'm from in South Central Los Angeles, there were very few spaces in our community that provided space for discussion, problem-solving, the enhancement or tapping into critical thinking, um, culture affirmation, learning history, and um, kind of filling the gap of the absence of black knowledge, black history, black affirmation, and um, functional behavior sometimes in, our, in, our, in, our, in the context of our community. Okay. And speaking of behavior, I'd like to turn our attention to focus in Missouri. Um, trying to get in on what's going on there uh, uh, from a behavioral standpoint um, and the behavior of the establishment, the white establishment, um, the institutional racism that's going on there or seems to be going on there. And uh, a report from the Justice Department seems to indicate that that's what's going on. What kind of insight can you give us in terms of that behavior that we see playing out there in Ferguson, Missouri? Well, I was there directly and spent time in Ferguson and did lots of in-depth interviewing. And um, my inspiration for going there, and this was several months ago now, maybe a month after everything started, two months as a matter of fact, because I was intrigued that the resistance and protests lasted so long because in the case of Trayvon Martin and Sean Bell and Amadou Diallo and so many other people, there was initial reaction, but it died down within a month's time or less. And for the first time that I knew about, there was a continued ongoing, non relentless resistance um, 
in response to a, a young black male being murdered, and I was intrigued. So I went to Ferguson to see for myself and find out from the residents there what was going on and what led them to such a strong reaction. Well, in context, the difference between Ferguson, for example, and a suburb of Florida or New York is that in, a, in Florida, as well as New York, has so much activity going on that relative to Ferguson, the uh, level of racism could be could be um, eclipsed by all the other activity that's going on, the lights, the camera, New York, and all this activity. Same with Florida. But Ferguson, it's too simple of a place to hide or eclipse the level of racism in law enforcement that's there, which frankly is everywhere. I used to work in law enforcement in Los Angeles, and it's equally as bad, but there's a lot of activity and geographical area and noise that gets in the way of it becoming an absolute focus. Well, in Ferguson, also a difference is that New York and where Trayvon died are not predominantly black. Ferguson is almost all black. So the irony of the powers that be being all white it becomes even more clear because of the um, huge disparity between a, a small group of law enforcers, in quotes, and a large group of black folks who live there. Well, to make a longer story relatively shorter, they had been under siege, which had just come out of the DCA report, but I, the DOG report, but I knew about that. The, D, the DOJ report contents in terms of what they would find months before that report came out because I was actually there, and I heard the horror stories from youth, from middle-aged people, and from elders, all who had lived there all their lives, who all had gone through the horrors of a racist police state. So the reason that they protested so long is because they thought they finally might have some relief from it. When all the cameras came because of Michael Brown's murder being caught on smartphone, they thought, well, maybe we could do something about this finally. Maybe we can get some relief from this. And then when um, Eric Holder came and the NACP leadership came and Sharpton and Jackson and et cetera, it's like, well, maybe we can actually do something about this. Maybe, maybe there's enough attention on this city for us to not be suffering like this anymore. So it was a whole history of... Um, of an onslaught of abuse that they, that they that they finally thought they could be relieved of if they protested long enough. And what's your take on this new turnabout? Uh, it happened in New York where a police officer um, was shot, which seemed to be unrelated uh, to the young man that was strangled to death. And here recently in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, two police officers were shot, which is connected to... Uh, the demonstrations that were going on there. What's your well, just on that? What, can we expect more of that? No. Just just like in the case of New York, um, one person, in this instance, he had nothing even to do with New York. He wasn't even from New York. Um, this, an individual did something on his own uh, in the same context or time frame as all the protesting in New York. There was, there's no connection. Um, the majority of the people by a long shot, who are involved in protests in Ferguson have no interest in shooting anybody. So there is no protest at large connection to an individual's decision to do something like that. So um, they, 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 really, they really have no direct connection. So, I mean, somebody's shooting a cop right now somewhere, and the cop is killing somebody somewhere right now in this country. 
Only way there would be a connection at all is if it got some notice through somebody else's smartphone or video. But cop yeah. killings happen all the time. Cop killings happen all the time, and cops get killed not as much as they not, not as much as they do kill themselves in terms of killing others. But cops get killed or harmed all the time. That's part of the job. Yeah, uh, what I meant by connection, uh, apparently this happened. I don't have all the, the full details. This apparently happened while people were demonstrating there near the police headquarters, and both the uh, protesters and the police were taking cover. So what I meant by connection, it was in such close proximity uh, to the protest uh, relative well, my, to Michael Brown's Well, my murder. response to my response is that the racist and and so-called right-wing white folks and all kinds of conservatives who aren't even there and have never, you've never even seen any of these protests directly and don't even understand the community of Ferguson are making this instant, convenient connection. And my point is, even if somebody in the crowd decided to shoot some cops, like you just got finished saying, both the cops and protesters were running for cover because it wasn't a protester decision. It was some individual deciding to do something. So it's not a, it's not... The, what protesters do is what an apparent individual did. Okay. Um, speaking of what's going on there in terms of the power structure, which is predominantly made up of white males, and I'm familiar with this concept of internalized oppression, and that would identify black folks in terms of in, Internalizing the lies that have been told about them. Yes, is there such a thing as internalized superiority amongst uh, those people in power, those white males in uh, Ferguson, that gives them the well, notion that they can the United black States, lives as well? In the United States, and I've I've literally studied and observed this some years ago. Um, in terms of the cause and effect of the media, the educational system, the political system, the presidential system up until Obama became president, who's half white, and I think that's significant. Um, this society all relentlessly implies that white people are superior. So not only do white people internalize it, everybody else does. It would be difficult not to when that's, when that's all you are taught. Even the English language itself implies that white people are more human and more valuable than the rest. For example, and there's tons of them, there's no such thing as a term black slavery, but there is such thing as a term white slavery because in the United States, slavery is already considered a black phenomenon. So it's redundant to add the word black to the word slavery, which is already racist. But if white people are enslaved or, or there's trafficking through sexual trafficking, whatever, it's called white slavery, and it's considered particularly appalling and horrendous for somebody to do. So there's already a hierarchy and a, and a um, implication of white people being particularly precious, like Natalie, Natalie um, I forgot her last name, but the, but the lady, the young lady who was missing in the Caribbean, Natalie Holloway, that was her name. When when, yeah. when blonde when blonde Nellie Holloway came up missing, we heard about it for several years. 
that that uh, this 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 damsel in distress, this precious white girl, was missing. And as you already probably remember, the first people that were 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 arrested were some black men um, who were harassed and tortured and locked up. When indeed it was a white male who killed her and continues to kill other women. So my point of raising that is that um, it's easy in the, in, the, in the Western world, including the United States, for white people to feel superior. One case that happened late last year was this blonde kid. I don't remember his name now. But it was, there was this blonde kid who killed a baby, and he said that he would likely get off because he's a cute little white blonde kid. And the judge heard that, heard about that, and, of course, threw the book at him. But he already has the mindset that because of his look and his blonde hair, very confidently he thought he would get away with it. So you can call it internalized white supremacy, as I call it, or you can call it a logical side effect of being in the vicinity of the United States. Well, uh, do you have any advice? What advice would you give to youngsters out there? Um, Which ones? Black youngsters, particularly, in terms of their conversation. Well, or... I would um, first of all, if I and I do this, I do this. I do work with young people and do provide a course called Critical Thinking and Culture Affirmation, or CTCA, where I train people, including young people, how to navigate the society in ways that are less damaging. And one of the ways that you do that is you teach them about the phenomenon of critical thinking. You teach them the, to understand the importance of critical thinking. You teach them to understand that they live in a society that's biased and unfair. See, one of the mistakes that black parents make is that they don't teach their children that it, racism is unfair. They, te- they imply that it's inconvenient as opposed to unfair because we're trying to move on and have a quote-unquote better life and and we don't want anybody to be mad at nobody. Plus, on an unconscious level, we feel like white people are superior, so we don't want to intrude. So we te- we um, teach our kids, you know, don't act a certain way and, you know, watch your behavior. But we don't teach them enough that racism is unfair and, they, and that they live in a, a society that is basically ran by bullies and it's unfair and we need to not – fall for the messaging of inferiority because it's not true. So so parents need to do that, and children need to understand that it's unfair. And they need to understand history and be real clear about the fact that they have to walk through this society with a critical eye and watch the media and everything else with a critical eye because there are unfair, incorrect messaging that comes from among the people that built it, Conceived, not built, because black people built it, but that conceived this place called the United States. We got to we got to start telling them the truth. We don't tell our kids the truth. They they, they celebrate the you know um, Easter Bunny and Santa Claus with the fat white man coming down. We can't do that. That's dangerous. We have to tell our children the truth and affirm them simultaneously as human beings who are still worthy of the best in the world and and a good life. But we have to prepare them to love, to learn, to, to discern the negative messaging that's all over the place in this culture. Like there's a show that I'm sure you've heard of that's on TV called Empire. Empire is racist as hell. It's full of anti-black messaging. 
and there's a lot of young black people watching that show, loving and having a good time, who are, who don't even recognize the anti-black implications because they have not been taught to. I would mm, very that. yeah, very interesting point there on empire. I've not watched that show as of yet. Uh, I'm interested. You were uh, in that area, Ferguson, Missouri. Spent a great deal of time. Can you kind of set for our listeners um, the other little communities there, like Jennings, Florescent, and how that St. Louis or North, what they call North County, and these cities along their I-70 and whatnot that are predominantly black, et cetera. And um, do you know much of that history? How did that How did that happen? That these little small communities was that the racism in St. Louis proper that uh, forced well, people those, out to these small communities? Those areas became black for the same reason that most communities become black because of either white flight or they being the land being historically undesirable. That's how you have a black community. And the uh, history in the recommendations, including from, for example, real, real, real estate people, will advise people and, and, and sway them to live in certain areas. So they sway black people and create communities where black people congregate, and they become black communities. Now, they once were white communities, as I mentioned before, like I'm from Compton, California, which is where Snoop Dogg and lots of black people who are well-known in hip-hop are from. Um, it used to be all white, but some black people moved in, and then slowly but surely all the white people left. So that's a, that's a cliché way of how um, black communities are created, either undesirable area of the, of the land mm-hmm. or whites leave. And in some respect, going back historically, when we had successful black communities such as Rosewood and Black Wall Street and right. um, uh, Flourish, and it was a matter of uh, jealousy, racism, and full force that ran those uh, black folks out of those communities. Um, um so in the same context, could we say that those blacks in Ferguson were banished from St. Louis and forced to move to Ferguson? Well, they were encouraged to move to Ferguson because, as mentioned before, see, white people are very strategic. Um, like, it's not a coincidence that the law enforcement is all white, and the surrounding community is predominantly black. Those kind of geographical phenomena result from white decision-making, always. Black people don't know that. Like I said before, black parents, unfortunately, try to get their children to assimilate and have a quote-unquote better life, don't explain racism to them. So they're always sitting ducks and ambushed and, and, and at risk to be ambushed into these these um, patterns. And, and as I said earlier, the it's the same answer. These black communities are created through white flight and through black people being encouraged, even through realtors and, and homeowners and landowners, to live in certain areas. 
And on top of that, often that's changing a lot, but typically black people prefer to be in a cultural setting that's familiar to them, that has the culture, the church, the food, the uh, the ambiance that they are familiar with. So between a desire for familiar, familiarity or feeling no, that you don't deserve anything beyond what you're familiar with and white flight and the other circumstances I mentioned that lead to creating black, all black working class or poor communities, these communities exist. White people don't have to do any hardcore um, banishing of black people out of these communities. As a matter of fact, Rosewood and, and, and um, so-called Greenwood in Tulsa um, that's a that's a that's a very blatant situation where these were opulent, prosperous black communities in a racist society that needed white people to be superior, so they couldn't handle that. That was not true. Just like when Barack Obama gave his first congressional speech, he was called a liar. Remember that? Oh, I remember that. Yes. They couldn't handle that he was up there articulate with black parentage, because I consider him bisexual, but he was up to, I mean, bi, not bisexual, biracial. He's up there, um, a person with black parentage, identified as black, articulate in the President of the United States, and they couldn't take it. Just like back in the day doing Rosewood, and there's other similar Rosewoods all across the country, the white superiority myth that some white people rely on to feel good about themselves, they couldn't take it. So they went and destroyed the community and lied about a rape and murdered and burned and did what they really wanted to do. Well, place, places like Ferguson weren't created through burning. Also, Ferguson was never an opulent black community. Now, since a lot of people in this country have never been there, it's not a poor, impoverished um, slum either. It's really not. I mean, the Canfield Arms, Apartments, which is where Michael Brown was murdered, are, is a nice place. It's a nice, well-kept uh, community of apartments, green grass, um, not dilapidated at all. But it's not an independent black-owned community. It's, pretty, it's basically a white rented. It's a, it's a community by black people live in that's owned by white people. So it's not the same dynamic as Rosewood or or Tulsa. And would I be correct in thinking that a lot of the victims of the police department there weren't necessarily Ferguson residents, but those African-Americans who were passing through Ferguson to get to other destinations and to some of the other yeah. smaller communities around? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's true. Even, even in Michael Brown's case, he didn't live in Canfield Apartments. But his, but he had relatives. He had, a, I think, it was a grandmother or some female relative that lived there, who he was going to see. But he didn't live there. And what do you think about the? Uh, what's your take on these recent uh, resignations there in uh, Ferguson? Police chief, uh, a prosecutor, city administrator. I take. I think that they. Um, well, see, I don't. I don't know enough of the details to be fully impressed by their resignation. They could have already been on the road to resignation. And uh, it looks interesting because it's connected to, in terms of time frame, as it appears, 
to the situation. But who knows? They might have been on their way or looking for an, a, an angle at which to, to resign, and probably are going to resign with some, you know, some real good pensions, et cetera. Um, but I also think there's a, there's a huge possibility that they, they they perceive a changing of the tide and or a loss of absolute power. And among some people, particularly racist people, if they can't have absolute power, they don't want nothing. Yeah, that's for sure. I'd like to remind our listeners that if they have a comment or question, they can reach us at 949-270-5957. And um, speaking again of those communities out there in, in North, uh, what they call North County, around the St. Louis area, can you describe for our listeners the uh, Jennings, and I believe that's where Darren Wilson was from. How far geographically was that or is that from Ferguson? It's not that far. I mean, St. Louis is not a huge place. So it's really not – these places are not that far. There's an area called St. Anne's, um, which is predominantly white, which is only um, – 10 minutes from Ferguson. And what's interesting about St. Anne's, which I heard about when I was there, was though St. Anne's is predominantly white, if you go to traffic court or go to court, to the court system for any reason, it was all almost all black people in St. Anne's at the courthouse. Hmm. That's how racist, that's how racist um, it, it, it is there. But all these areas are parts of, parts of St. Louis, which is not a huge, huge place, and they're all very close to each other. Okay. Have you had a chance to um, look into, I believe it was up in Wisconsin here recently, or any other um, incidents of young black men here recently being gunned down by police officers, white police officers? Um, in terms of some kind of detailed um, investigation on my own part, no. Um, but I have a I have a mentality about this that might be alarming or disturbing to some people, but I just have to be honest. The black male murder machine, an ongoing machine that has been ongoing all of my life, and based on what I hear from my 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 um, relatives who are older, et cetera, and other people, it's never it's never stopped. Only reason we're hearing about these incidences now is because of smartphones and modern technology and some people being relentless enough to make sure that people know. But there's more cases than not that we don't hear about. As a matter of fact, even in the black psyche, black male criminality is such a normal thing that we don't even blink when we see a, a, a black male being handcuffed and led away and or dead in the street. Even our subconscious um, um, deduction is, well, he, you know, he must have did something. <laughs> so with that must have did something mentality, there's lots of people being killed left and right and incarcerated and their lives destroyed all the time. So my focus is on the importance of policy change and black self-conceptual and impulse change because we're not designed on a collective basis to protect ourselves. I mean, black men have been, and black women as well, have been murdered by the cops for, for decades. 
say nothing new. Yeah. I mean, Amadou Diallo died, what, 10, 20 years ago? Um, you know, this is not new, period. And yeah, the we're Panthers not. In Philadelphia. Well, that's why the Panthers, that's why the Black Panthers came into existence in the first place in the 60s, was to fight against this same problem. And, and, and several of them were murdered. And black people were so busy praying to a white Jesus and or feeling inferior or scared that, that overall the community, we didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I'd so like we're, read... we're just... I'm sorry. Wait, I'm sorry. No, go well, on. I wanted to read something here to get your opinion on it um, <laughs> in reference to the DOJ uh, report, which says, in part, local authorities consistently <laughs> approach law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way of generating revenue, Holder Mm -hmm. said, adding Mm -hmm. that racial bias, both implicit and explicit, results in the unconstitutional execution of the law. Yeah. Again, not new. Um, Same thing's happening all over this country, in Baltimore, Maryland, in Washington, D.C., everywhere, the same thing. Black people are profound money makers for different types of um, entities in this society. We make a lot of money because of dysfunction and disparity and the internalized oppression that comes from institutionalized white supremacy in media, in school systems, everywhere that has black people calling themselves the N-word and trying to justify it or trying to legitimize it. All of that craziness comes out of being black in this in this suit called the United States. So what, what, what Holder found is not just, I mean, you heard about stop and frisk in New York. Well, the majority of people who are being stopped and frisked by a long shot were black, then Latino. And some of those Latinos were black, but white. But New York is full of white crooks. Like most you know, of here, I'm sorry. Go on. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just saying that among white people, crime is high, and even murder is high. But you know, they don't have the stigma that we have, so everything is made into a black face. Negative phenomenon. But if you read yeah, FBI, you, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, as you've indicated, this has probably been going on forever. I'm reminded of Sam Pollock's film, uh, Slavery by Another Name, which was mm-hmm. based on the book uh, by uh, Douglas Blackman um, and the legal system and uh, how it fed into the political or into the industrial system, uh, the plantation system, etc. And um but since what what needs to happen in this country uh to make this old news and keep it old news and no more new incidents of this type occur. What's it really gonna take? Well, let's look at some existing examples of communities um, just for the sake of argument, that are not white, that are doing relatively well. 
um, without having to have an NACP or a so-called um, National Action Network with Sharpton and a blah, blah, blah. Um, Asians don't need no NACP. Um, Latinos don't even have an NACP and are growing and becoming more opulent and powerful every minute of the day as we speak. The only group that has an NACP and a Sharpton type of person, et cetera, is black people because black people have been conditioned to live racialized lives. We need to unlearn being a, thinking in a racialized manner and learn to be, to, to be powerful. We come from a history that has taught us to be racialized because we were racialized brutally to the point of murder quite frequently for, for several hundred years in this country. But now we have the, in the, in, in the modern era, we have the power in our hands, at least, to do anything we want to do. But our minds are still trapped in race thinking. And we have to come out of race thinking in terms of a place of deficiency to protection of our tribe and advocacy and affirmation and support of each other, like Asians do, like Jews do, like the white gay community does, like Latinos do. They don't think twice about being about their own people. Black people, because of racialization, are called militant and angry and troubled and troublemaker for caring about black people in specific or, or, or divisive. That's racist. And it's a white accommodationist perspective that came out of slavery. We have to unlearn these slave-based, race-based distractions and learn to have respect for ourselves and honor ourselves as people of African descent in this country and be learn how to be more mentally healthy with each other. Because that white folks might be racist toward Asians or that the right wing might be homophobic toward homosexuals or they might not like Latinos overall. They don't give a damn about them liking them or not. If you if you harm any of them, they you, you got you got you got hell to pay. That ain't true when you harm us because we're not collectively operating in you in, in concert on each other's behalf. We have we have mixed loyalties. We don't know whether to um, below to white supremacy or to black health and functionality. We don't know. Okay, so you mentioned, um, you know, organizations such as NAACP, et cetera. So am I hearing you correctly in terms of we need more individuals coming to the fore? I'm thinking of the time that lynchings were legal here in the United States and uh, Ida B. Wells got involved and made a difference. Right. Um, so are we as black people going to have to take an individual stance and mm-hmm. kind of get away from um, these organizations? Do I have a caller on the line? Yeah, I'm hearing two voices. Yeah. Is there a caller on the line? Okay. Okay. Getting back, um, getting back to your que- getting back to your question about individuals. No, I I, I think I, I think going individual is a mistake. Um, just to be clear here, 
I think organizations like the NACP and a list of organizations that I just mentioned to you are from an, uh, they're antiquated. They're from another age. All they basically do is, in most cases, is push white-faced Christianity and basically an old-school, back-in-the-day motif that is not helpful now. We need, frankly, we need the kind of discussions that Malcolm X was trying to get us to have before he was murdered. We need to... Hello, Mr. Monago. This is Leslie Gist. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, we had technical difficulties throughout the night, so I want to apologize for that. But I have a quick question. Since sure. the um, inception of the anti-Christian movement, and I want to compare the the Christian movement from the 1700s, starting with um, the one I'm familiar with the most, which is Richard Allen right. and his African free Right. Um, his African Free um, Benevolent Society. From that movement, all the way up to the end of slavery and the civil rights, to the the beginning, and I want you to compare that era and the success they had, to the beginning of the anti-Christian movement. And I want you to tell me which movement had the most success. <laughs> Well, when Richard Allen was alive, which was in the 1700s, and which was a time when when blatant racism and blatant slavery was undeniable, we were very clear then about the race, the brutal race context that we were facing then. And even though Richard Allen had a relative amount of success through the context called Christianity, because that was the only context we were allowed we were not allowed to do anything but church, even though it's called the black church. But let me, or let, me let, let me let me let me just interject. Sure. We were once you were free, you could you could have worshipped whoever you wanted to. Buddha, all the religions were available, which they are today. So when we talk about free Africans who were formerly enslaved, they had the choice to go back to their roots and practice the religion. That they they um, originally practiced, the, the parents practiced. In fact, Richard Allen went back to Africa, and also identified with Africa. The point that he was sued by the white establishment, the church, because he wanted sovereignty, and he wanted right. to be he wanted to govern his own church. So these right. were pro Pan African black men in the 1700s, who not under anybody's. Um, uh, um, by any force were told that they had to be Christians, they decided to be Christians when the whites didn't want them to be Christians. And not only were they Christians here, they took that missionary um, business back to Sierra Leone and different places in Africa. So, again, and it's not just true. I pose this question to uh, most people who come on the show and they say, well, you know, the Christian movement didn't work. I like to know what did the non-Christian movements do as far as civil rights and, abol- and, and abolishing slavery. Just give me some some example as how can you say that this one didn't work and this one is working? Because all I've seen okay. so far since okay. the Christians haven't been in existence a decline. Well, if you listen, a if decline. you listen to the sh- if you listen back to the show, which I, which you, I'm sure you will, I never said what didn't and did not work. 
I never I never articulated something working or not working. What I said was that the Christian church, and I specifically talk about having a fan to a white Jesus, was did impact how we saw things and how we did things. Now, work mm-hmm. or not work is a relative thing. Also, what right. I have to also bring context to is that back during during the slavery period and during the mid 1700s, when Richard Allen was alive, a whole lot of other religious opportunities or choices was not even known. So, so Buddhism, for example, would have not been an option in the psyche as something that people can do. Now, going back to Africa would have been because some of us long to do that, and Richard Allen did that. But his frame of reference and the frame of reference that most black people had was English, number one. They didn't even speak their own languages anymore. And in most parts of the country, whether they were Richard Allen or not, their African spiritual concepts had been had been drowned out, and that was not their frame of reference except for some kind of distant memory. For most of well, us, well, we also now, have just, Paul. We also have Paul Cuffey, who was a Quaker, and he's a very right? well-off black abolitionist who were Pan-African, and he traveled right. the world. We had many right. um, black abolitionists because they couldn't get educated here who went all over the world to be educated in the 1700s. So they were exposed to different... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sneezing. I'm sorry. I was sneezing. Oh, okay. So they were exposed Finish. to different... They were they were to different religions. Uh, you know, many of them spoke different languages. Even Paul Robeson spoke 25 different languages fluently. So, you know, when we try to... Um, describe our, our, our black um, freedom fighters from the slave era as people being ignorant and didn't, weren't exposed to anything. They were more exposed and more intelligent than the people today, and especially the ones in the 60s. They, they with very little money and um, education, they were able to go throughout the world and be educated. And to well, network uh, without any without any uh, internet, Facebook, or t- so I think we need to give them more respect when we talk about um, them being exposed to languages. You know, well, you read their you, books, you, their narrative. You, but you're but you're bringing in new people. See, the fir- first you were, we were talking about Richard Allen, and then you went to Paul Robeson, et cetera. I understand and what Paul you're Coffee. saying, and I and, and and Paul Coffee, and I agree. But I mean, what, but I, what I think inspired you to even ask me these questions was what appeared from you as me having a critique of Christianity. And but I right. go back to my to – my, uh, so my, my point to you, and I still stick with that, is that we're, those people that you mentioned were exceptions. Uh, Paul Robeson worked in no. the arts. No, they weren't. They were not. Let me put, they were not. Let me finish my point. you got to let me finish. Mm-hmm. You don't know what I was getting ready to say. Okay. There's only one Richard Allen. He's, he's, he's the first leader. He's the one who initiated the AME church. He's the only one. Then you have Paul Robeson, who was, who was also the only person that was able to get where he got to in the arts, and that's an actor, and was able to travel the world and learn, and, and, and learn languages. And, and white folks have always allowed at least one or two to, to look like, to, 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 like Oprah. We got Oprah now. And it's not that listen, listen, Oprah, listen, I got to stop you with all due respect. Richard Allen's church is still standing, and I have about 12 books which are based on AME ministers 
their church is thriving in at least 33 countries. Richard Allen duplicated himself. So it's not just one Richard Allen. If it was just one Richard Allen, when he died, his church would have died. So what we're doing now, and when you say that, but when you say that, you sound like Martin Luther King's speech when he says, you know, we're the drum major. Then that's a white mentality. Oh, what uh, what, uh, Malcolm said that, you know, the the Negro first, you got the Negro first syndrome. You know, you got to be the first. And and I make sure. See, you are, I think you're, you're. I think you're hearing me through your perspective instead of the nuance of what I'm saying. I'm very familiar. Mm-hmm. I used to go to AME Church. I know a lot mm-hmm. about Richard Allen. So when I say mm-hmm. there's only Richard Allen, I mean there's only one man named Richard Allen who started this empire. So you're, what you're talking about is that there's many people that came after him and that he trained or created a context that helps to educate and, and, and continue to this day. I'm, I'm, I'm real clear about that. But but, but right. so so that so that so what I'm saying does not contradict that or tell us that fact that cannot be denied. But right. what I'm saying, which is, which still might bother you, is that the the model, which is what I said in the first place before you were were compelled to tell me about um, the church, et cetera, was that mm-hmm. it's an old model. It's an old model. It's an old institution, right. and it's mm-hmm. not it's not prepared in the modern world. To stop the 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 advent of the murder of black people and these things that are going on, it's an old model and it's a, and it's a Christian model. It's, it, I would say a lot of it has been infiltrated. I will agree with you that it has been infiltrated with the new model. I agree. I think the old model works perfectly, but today we have these these ministers called uh, Dollar Preflo Dollar. We have Reverend Price. Um, we have this prosperity. Uh, preaching, we have even um, Mother Bethel has a bunch of fraternity uh, stained glasses all over the, the church. So I think the church has been infiltrated by these new models that everybody thinks is going to work. But since we have been well, adopting I, the ways I, I of the oppressor and have been looking for money and thinking that money is going to solve these things and we have lost brotherhood, which is a Christian premise, we no longer have the brotherhood of the Christian premise that ended slavery. So I want to know what new model that you suggest we use or what new model has helped us out since well, the formation of the Antichrist movement. Have we improved? That's think, the one question I'm asking you. Have well, we improved the introduction? I'm, I'm going to say it. I'll, I promise I'll be quiet. Have we improved since the introduction? Since the introduction of the Antichrist model as a black race, have we improved in our civil rights movement or have we digressed? That's all I'm asking. Well, I'm not an expert on the Antichrist movement. I mean, I can't give you a whole lot of talk about the Antichrist movement. I'm not a part of that movement. I don't know much about the Antichrist well, movement. Well, when you say that the I Christian think, movement I, isn't working, so that's why you said, you know, maybe you can articulate my question a lot than I can. But I think you understand what I'm asking you. Since this movement of saying that Christianity hasn't been working since the 60s or 50s, have we made any strides with any other model that equals or parallels since the Christian movement? Well, you you just you you answered some of my questions when you mentioned that the church has been infiltrated, and there is no model happening right now. First of all, the church right now 
it's basically, and you might be offended by this, but I'm just going to tell you. Well, I'm not asking you to talk about your movement. I'm not asking you to talk about the church. I'm, I'm giving you a platform to promote the movement that you think is working. I know about the church, and we all know about the church, but I'm asking you, this is your your time to say, this is a working model. Let's go with this model, okay. and this is why. Okay, then I'll go back to what I said earlier in the show when I was talking to the, to, to, to the guy. What's, what will work and what I'm involved in, and I haven't called it a movement, but, I mean, it could be, but I'm talking about a strategy more than anything right now, that I've seen. Well, let me give you context. In order for me to you understand what I'm saying, i got to give you the context. My, my, my perspective is this. Black people are in a trance. Black people have been traumatized and disappointed and misled into a trance state where we've become basically asleep at the will and just trying to survive as opposed to thrive. We are a community that's been easily to exploit because we're not in control mm-hmm. We we are in a trance, and the, the the current church teaches black people to be codependent to a man who's who, in my opinion, is basically almost like a pimp with a cross, and it's a man who basically teaches the whole the whole flock that they need him and to give him money so they can get to heaven or have blessings. So as a result of this passive mind mind control mind. Whether it's the white supremacy mind control from the media, whether it's the white supremacy mind control from how we're educated in this society, where white people are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the beta, they did everything. And there's all these different um, sources that put black people into a trance state where we're just surviving as opposed to every other group in this society who was thriving. What first okay. needs to occur. Right. Uh, okay, I'll I, I I give you the answer. Okay, I'm getting to the answer part. I have to give you context first in terms of what my model is responding to. My response was, mm-hmm. my model is responding to that, to that trance state. I have a model called CTCA, which stands for Critical Thinking and Cultural Affirmation. There's not even enough time for me to get into all the elements of it, but what it does is it creates a space where black people – are are guided toward going into a sense of self-evaluation and to check themselves against what I call, for lack of a better term, the benefit factor and do a conscious evaluation of their lives as if they're living it in benefit of progress or taking care of their black families or being an asset to their community. In most cases, when we do our initial testing during the model, most people are not doing any of these things. They're not preparing for prosperity or a black affirming experience. They just, you know, they just live. They're not thinking toward collective black progress. So okay. once I help them, so once I help them through my model, be real clear about where they are, then they're asked questions that trigger that critical thinking capacity. How do you feel about being who you are? How do you feel about being black? And this is a very abbreviated version. I don't have time to give you the whole, the whole thing. And they're okay. asking critical questions. They have critical questions that make them actually take a look at how, frankly, unconscious, and for lack of a better term, out of control of their lives that they are. And once they, okay. are, once they are trickled into a critical thinking way of being, then we do a lot of educating. 
including a historical education, including studying about the likes of Richard Allen and how and his original intention and how and, and people okay. like Marcus Gar Marcus Garvey and other people mm-hmm. who were successful at getting black people to be progressive and loving themselves. Because believe okay. it or not, before I do the trans breaking work, they're not even interested in black people. They don't care about black history. They don't care mm-hmm. about black stuff, and they really, and they well, really don't want to I, hear from a black man. I, I got it. Go I got it. But I have to mention that when you say that the people are in a trance, like people are in a trance, and that this is this trance is being uh, done by white white society and the white blue eyed Jesus on a cross, something to that effect. What I what I want to tell you when I talk about infiltration, when we look at the ministers prior. To the Civil War, um, like the Nat Turners and many that were just like him. And we mm-hmm. looked at people who were very active, like Moses, Harriet Tubman. And these people would be punished, and any white person teaching them how to read, especially the Bible, would be punished. So when we talk right. about the history of the Bible and Christianity, it was not putting black people into a trance. And I think we have this false notion that white uh, missionaries went across the, the ocean and stole black people from Africa with the Bible in their hand and that Africans were that stupid and that meek that they could be tricked after in existence and surviving for centuries that somebody with a Bible and the whites could trick these highly intelligent people who could make make um, pyramids, they will be duped by a Bible. So I first want to, you know, make that clear that my African ancestors weren't stupid and they weren't duped by a Bible and a blue-eyed devil called Jesus. Um, <laughs> well, first second, of all, I want you to... No, I no, no, and I'm not calling Jesus, I'm not calling Jesus blue-eyed devil. I'm just saying that this is the story that, that we've been told. The thing I want to mention is, when I say... When I say infiltrate, it was a deliberate decision to have Martin Luther King replace Vernon Johns. Vernon Johns was a very fiery um, preacher. He was hated by the white establishment. He, he was forced out of the church and replaced by Martin Luther King. So when we look at the history of the black minister and especially when we look at them right after the Civil War and emancipation, it was a, a deliberate um, PR uh, propaganda attack waged on the black church and specifically the black minister to call them buffoons because of the success they had. So I just make that clear that um, I'm a proponent of what the church for what the Bible stood for, and I believe the '60s, the the white man, the government understood the power of the church and the Christian movement to the degree that they put people in place to separate us from the church and our names and our and our immediate ancestors, and to say they had nothing to do with the liberation of their own people. That was that it was merely Quakers, Harriet Tubman, and Lincoln, and all other black people just sat around on the plantation eating watermelon and chicken 
and happy to be a slave. And when I hear black people telling that story, I can understand white people saying it because they need to say it. But when I hear black people, especially, you know, conscious, so-called conscious black people, saying that my ancestors were happy slaves and meek and weak, and even if you go back to Africa, that they were just as dumb that they got on a boat willingly with the Bible. I have to interject, and, you know, I've done it several times. Preston would tell you. Right, Preston? Right. Well, I, I hear you, sister, but my only concern about what you're saying is that it, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with what I said or what I think, or it, it's not relevant to me. Okay. Well, maybe I misunderstood. But for the listeners, if you did say what I thought, or if you think like what I thought Mr. Monago said, I just want to be clear that please respect our ancestors, starting with your grandmother, your grandfather, all the way back to Africa, and know that they were very strong people and we were resisting slavery individually, collectively. Um, we had writers, we had slave artists, and I don't like to use the word slave, but we had um, survivors of slavery writing their own narratives, telling the story of how they uh, helped free themselves, and once they got free, they were back and helped well, 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 Leslie, you're like I said before. Mm-hmm. You know, you must be having a, a memory from a, la- a previous interview because everything you just said, I already know and believe and say. Okay. It's part. It's, it's part well, of. I'm glad we agree. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's part of my. I talk about how some black people who found a way to be to buy themselves out of enslavement bought others out of enslavement. And I'm real mm-hmm. clear on on our history and that we weren't a bunch of dumb Africans. I never seen them like that. I never mentioned watermelon and none of that. So that don't no, got to do with how I feel. Right. Right. But when you said exception, when you mentioned the word exception. Well, yeah, but see, what, I say, what, what I'm doing is I'm saying things that are triggering you to want to, to say a bunch of stuff, which is only a part of my perspective. You're, you're being triggered. Because right. when I said that there's only Richard, only one Richard Allen, there is only one Richard right. Allen. I, I, but I'm not saying that what you said, what you just got finished saying in terms of his legacy and the church being around is not true. There's all kinds of people. There's, there's Father Divine. There's all kinds of people whose churches are still around. But they're right. not the same church. But it's not the same thing. These these things right now are are, are passive little communities now. And that are people that are pimped, in my opinion, by a quote unquote leader who's making them codependent to him and his what he what he says, as opposed to building community and defending black people. Richard Allen was defending black people, and back then, mm-hmm. and back then at that time, black people, like I said much earlier, before you interjected, we were very, 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 very clear about what our circumstances were. We ain't clear no more. We got black people in, in large numbers who think there is no racism. And who have been successfully trained by ministers, including some that you mentioned, that there is no race problem. And so, uh, it, it'll be, it might it, we could be even more clear when we talk about some things that are really um, responsive to how we actually feel. Because I, my perspective in terms of what happened in Africa, where I've been many times and researched my perspective, is that it was hardly just the, the white face Christian religion 
with the white Euro Christian Victorian well, you, white you're version triggered. of things. You're triggering me again. Right, but let me, but let me, <laughs> Go but let me, you, you got to hold, you got to hold your gun. You got to hold your gun. It ain't just that. I mean, one of the things that, that have nothing to do with intelligence that white people did, that has nothing to do with somebody, is they did what I call breaking laws of the human heart. For example, if you, if you and I went to lunch tomorrow and you decided to kill me, you, you would be able to do it successfully because I would never, ever expect you to pull out a gun in the middle of a restaurant and shoot me, so I would just be vulnerable and get killed. But you would never mm-hmm. do that. You, and, and see, what white people still do, they do it to the Native Americans, they, they did it. That, that, what they do is they they do stuff that weak. This don't got nothing to do with intelligence. I'm a really smart man. I know I'm smart. But if you decided tonight to have lunch with me tomorrow and kill me, regardless of my intelligence, I will be killed because I would not be prepared for something crazy like that. Serial killers get away with what they do because their victims cannot imagine that this person sitting here in this car eating a mc eating a mc a mc some McNuggets is going. to going to snatch me up and take me somewhere and slice me up. They can't even think like that. So when white folks got to the continent and started scheming and doing their things, they had things in mind that we could not even imagine. As you already know, white people gave the Native Americans in this country blankets for their babies as gifts that were filled with smallpox. Mm-hmm. They, didn't know, they didn't know that. They would have never done nothing like that to no white babies. And what the white people did to Africans over in Africa, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't, we don't even think like that. So this this goes beyond just religion and, and intelligence. This this goes into a realm that I call breaking laws of the human heart, going beyond the. I, and the, I, uh, I the, and I agree with you, but I also I don't think I I think we have to take and I want to be clear because of the intellect of the African and because were the Native people, and we had the numbers in Africa. I don't think they had the strength or the mind to overcome and to defeat us without us doing something self-destructive. I'm not going to give them that much credit to say, it's like I was a basketball coach. I, I would tell you that my team beat themselves by not shooting free throws and missing the free throws, rather than to say that another team came in and just beat us, you know, because they overpowered us. And I believe as Africans that we must have been sleeping. We've got we to do something because I can't see them coming across on my defeating me unless I, I had to do something to give them a, a leg up. And I well, don't I, think I, that they, you, they could be that powerful. Well, it's they not an issue of help. power. I don't think it's an issue of power. If you go if you go to the mountains to camp, a lion could eat you up or a bear. That don't mean the bear is smarter than you or better than you. That, this has nothing to do with, with, with being more powerful. It has to do with timing, context, and circumstance. But I give you a real-to-life situation that occurred that we don't even mm-hmm. have to be theoretical. You've heard of Patrice Lumumba. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Patrice, Patrice Lumumba was was in, was as you know from the so-called Congo that white folks called the Congo, and 
he was concerned, and I'm abbreviating this story to make the point because it's a long story. But he was he was mm-hmm. he was from there. He saw white folks owning all the the resources and running every the, the, the diamonds, the gold, the the coal, everything, and he didn't like it. And he saw how white people in their colonial systems were keeping everybody confused and fragmented. So what he did was he successfully organized all these different African communities to come together and work together in unison with each other. There also was a guy named Mugabe. Not Mugabe, I'm sorry. Mobutu. But how did the white people come into the, how did they come to Africa to be in this position to take over the gold and the diamonds as a minority? Well, in my opinion, and from my own research, it goes back to what I said earlier, breaking laws of the human heart. For example, the, when the Africans in Nubia and Kemet, which, which white folks named Egypt, had colleges and universities, see, one of, the da- one of the dangers of having self-esteem and having self-comfort is that you subjectively think others might have that. You don't realize that they don't when you come from a place of self-comfort. And what I mean by that, in a healthy self-concept. So if that's all you know, you don't know what it's like to be crazy and, and have low self-esteem and, and tripping. For example, when the commission people had colleges and universities, they opened up to everybody. Anybody could go to their colleges. All over the world, people came to their colleges. But white folks became students to infiltrate. The, the 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 Africans didn't know that. They didn't know that. So that they thought so they were we, we, they thought mm-hmm. they were just students. Have you have you ever been in a relationship before? I I don't think Have you ever been in a personal relationship before? You. Yes. Yes. And that once you, you get that that one. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, sometimes you you don't get a chance to get burnt twice, so they 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 can do some damage first. But my point is that mm-hmm. you have been in a situation before, and I know for a fact that you're intelligent. There's no, I've met you. I've been in your presence. I know your brain ain't, ain't the normal brain. But despite your intelligence and your critical thinking capacity, you have been in a relationship before that you regretted. Right? Of course. Right. So my point to you is that. That's how human beings can be, regardless of intelligence. This is not an issue of my opinion of being weak. It's just that people can be very, very subjective. If you come from a family, this happens all the time. I have a friend who's a musician from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was raised by a mother and a father. She's black. Her mother and father were black. They raised her to be an intelligent, prosperous young lady. She was a sing, so she became a singer. She worked with Tina Turner and all kinds of people. But what she was, what her parents did not prepare her for, were men who were dogs. They only prepared her to be a prosperous, forward-thinking young lady in Tulsa. They did not, mm-hmm. they did not prepare her for the, for the music business. So she got she got dogged out left and right because of her naivety, because all she knew of was having functional a functional family and a functional immediate family environment. So people, so she, so she thought everybody she, that she met was just as functional. What what's going to help black people? This gets back to to the to the one of the questions the previous interviewer asked me in terms of going forward. 
is that we have, instead of allowing our children to be naive, like I said earlier, we talk about racism with our children, if we do at all, as an inconvenience as opposed to an injustice. So when you talk to your children about an injustice as simply an inconvenience, they're not prepared to fight because they think that it's that something's wrong with them. Instead of, this, instead of them being in the midst of some crazy folks who are practicing injustice, so we have to start telling right. the truth to our kids, telling the truth to our children, and preparing them to live in this place called the United States of America, which is basically an un, an imbalanced white supremacist place that can do wrong things in terms of the kind of world it's trying to create to keep its power. We have to understand right. that we live in we we live in an agenda. Not into a, not in a neutral landscape. We are in we are subject to an agenda. When Asians come over here, and I know this because I have a little cousin. I mean, I have a little cousin who's half Chinese and half black. Of course, the black people are my family, and he lives mm-hmm. with his with his he lives with his Chinese grandparents because his Chinese father is not is not available for, to him. But mm-hmm. this is the thing that's interesting about my little cousin. He gets Chinese lessons. He gets he he has a Chinese style. He walks around with a sense of peace. His crazy ass relatives, black, just off the chain. They don't have mm-hmm. that sense of peace. They don't have that sense of peace and cultural clarity and balance and discernment, like his Chinese part of him does. And that kind of discernment and personal peace and and and, and forethought. It's why Chinese come over here, and they do better than we do. It's not that we're not intelligent. We have been interrupted, Leslie. We don't even know our mm-hmm. names. His last name, my, my cousin's last name, is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. His mother's mm-hmm. last name is about, you know, he don't, he don't even know. His, mother's, his mother has some white man's last name. These things but are relevant. Before we close, before we close, and we have to get you back on because I really enjoy talking to you. Um, Not a problem. And I like learning from you. But when we talk about names, and I really enjoyed, and I, I'm going to send you a link to Cheryl Wills' interview. And Cheryl Wills is, in, I think, this New York One, um, a New York television uh, network, and she did research on her great-great-grandfather, who was in the Civil War. And she went to the um, the Library of Congress and the National Archives, and they sent her, she, she asked for information on him, something piqued her interest, and she asked them, you know, send me whatever you have on my, on my um, relative. And they sent her, I think, a room full of boxes and a big bill. And she spent a lot of months going through these records, and she discovered that her grandfather had a slave name. But then when he um, got his pension from being in the Civil War, they interviewed him, and he changed his name to what we would call another slave name. Mm -hmm. And he chose to identify with, I think, an abolitionist or someone of that nature. And what I learned from her interview was that many of the um, the formerly enslaved black people, the slave name because they wanted to be reunited with their with their relatives, 
because they were their parents mm-hmm. were broken out. And the only mm-hmm. way that they can intellectually <laughs> stay connected to one another is to keep that plantation name. Now, legally sure. speaking, if you look at any of the slave rosters, they're, 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 the names are only first names. It was illegal mm-hmm. to give a slave a white man's surname. So mm-hmm. when you hear black people saying today, oh, that's a slave name, no. When your people got free, they chose, for instance, the people that I'm connected to and have been researching, they changed their name from gift to steal. They chose the name steal. You may say, well, that's, that's, from, that's a European name. But it meant something to them. So when we talk about names and changing your names, um, you, we have to give credit to our ancestors to try to reunite. These people were so desperate to find their loved ones that once they got free, they put ads in newspapers with those slave names to say, this is who I was, this is the plantation. It was all about being reunited, and it was nothing to do with um, they love the master. No, they love each other. So those names show that much. Well, well, of course not. I mean, that makes what you're saying right now makes sense, and that's 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 a a smart strategy in which to find other people that were enslaved by the same people, so you can find them. That makes sense as a, in in the context of their lives. They didn't have no choice but to find that name because they didn't know their name. So they're being strategic to find each other. The, the, the Jackson family. I'm not talking about the new Jackson, but the old Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Jacksons are, came into being, which is a popular name among blacks, and some other names for the same thing that you described. It's still a slave name, but you're talking about right. being strategic. You're talking about being strategic given black people have always ingeniously made something out of what we had. But I'm going to tell you right. something. And, 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 and if, if, if Richard Wright, if Richard, Richard Allen would have changed his name to Monago or Buddha or Muhammad, they would have never been reunited. Well, I'm not good for hypothesis. He did what he did. I mean, you know, he didn't. But I'm, I'm just saying, if, if, yeah. if, if in the 1700s, in the 1800s, if they would have taken on a movement to say, right after the end of slavery, it's more, it's more important to identify with Africa than to be reunited with my family. That's here right now. That, that's tangible. That I need right now than to talk about I want to identify with a place um, that I, I know I'm from by the complexion of my skin. But I really want to know where my child is from my mother. Of course. But of course. My allegiance, now, my allegiance is not to, not to my family, but it's to a, a landmass, Africa. Which one makes more sense? Well, given the context, it's not even an issue of what makes sense. It's an issue of what they were stuck with. And what and they want to find each other, so they did what you said they, they they're supposed to do. So I mean that's what happened. So, a lot so of black people. I don't the, say they're the, ignorant. The, well, I never mm-hmm. called anybody ignorant ever. See, I, you never see. Mm-hmm. You, like I said, you get me mixed up with a previous interview. I ain't calling nobody mm-hmm. ignorant. Nobody. This, I mean, this but the, you know, they call it a slave ignorance. name. It's not. Because it is a slave name. Hmm? It is a slave name. It is a slave name. The point, the, the context. So you got, you got to understand when I say stuff. You got to look at the context. The context mm-hmm. of this discussion at this point was my little cousin Isaac, who's half Chinese and half and black. His, his mother, his, his mother's black, 
who has a slave name that she don't know where it came from or nothing, and she and she doesn't have the relative value and clarity in terms of culture and self concept that 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 he has on the Chinese side. And it's fascinating to me as a behavioral health specialist to watch Isaac because he's always self contained, calm, and focused and balanced no matter what's going down. And he and he has a strong eight Chinese. He has a strong Chinese foundation because that's how Chinese are, and we have to re, we have to re, reconnect with a strong black foundation so we can have an impulse to be advocates for other black people, or else we ain't gonna make it. Okay, all right. So I, my point is, your connection starts at home, as you know. You hear people always say, "Charity begins at home." Your connection is right there in your house, and you can't connect with your family the way you saying the way you're saying um, it's Chinese relative yours is connecting with his family. We can do that, but for some reason we are ashamed because we think that this name and who we are is so wrapped up in this this um, misery called enslavement that we can't get out of that mindset to say that we have something to do with our liberation and that everything well, Leslie, about us is forced, was forced on us and that we never have Leslie, Leslie, first of all, and I'm telling you what I know from constantly traveling around this country all the time mm-hmm. and talking to black people all the time, black people don't think about slavery. Black people don't think mm-hmm. about slave names. Black people don't think about this stuff. No. Black people, as a matter of fact, if we did, we'd be better off. Like the Jews are constantly talking about what they call the Holocaust, constantly. They're constantly making videos. They're constantly making books. They're constantly making movies. They're constantly making films and movies and literature or some type of interface about the so-called Holocaust, constantly. If we did that, we would be better off. But let me tell you something. Black folks ain't think about no slavery. Black folks are not think about no slave names. Black folks ain't think about none of this kind of stuff. You remember when Oprah did Beloved and three people went to go see it back mm-hmm. in the day when and she I did gave Beloved? It away. We, and I gave it away. We ain't interested in our history. We ain't interested in where we came from, which is a problem. So, mm-hmm. no, we're not thinking well, about when, when, when people talk about the Jewish that. people, but the Jewish people have isolated themselves. They have their own schools. We have our own schools. We have our own schools. But we were forced to integrate. They shut down our schools and said that our schools were segregated. They didn't close down the white schools for being segregated. But they shut our schools down. Well, not only were we forced to do that, we also thought that white was better. Their, their, Their ice was colder. I'm not talking about back during slavery. I'm talking about 60s and 70s now. We Thank are you. So now, now we're on the same we're, page. We're, You're right. We agree. In the so 60s and 70s, right. Yeah, we, we, we had on, and, it's, and frankly, the white Jesus symbology is part of that, part of what created that white folks are better than black folks mythology that had us wanting to integrate with Not the real, not the real teachers. Not the well, real teachers. I I ain't talking about I'm talking about what happened. I ain't talking about the real and the unreal. I'm talking about I'm just tell, I'm just telling you. And most of my relatives, we have seven, they, they love we, the white folks. Oh, my relatives love well, my my my, my well, You need to meet my grandparents. Love. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I love to. My, my, my grandmother me. When I was a little boy and I was and I was crying about a racist incident that happened to me at school, my grandmother told me that that we were the 
the descendants of Ham and Eggs or somebody in the Bible, Ham and Abel or somebody, mm-hmm. and that this was my destiny as a black person. That's what my grandmother told me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not everybody had, you know, but I'll let you go. But Harry Belafonte, when he um money for the Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Ohio, he had mm-hmm. a CD, and he had he has a song on here, um, and a reenactment of a white preacher preaching to the to the slave, and he's telling the slave the Ten Commandments are, "Don't steal your master's chickens and hogs," and the slaves are mm-hmm. sitting going, "Yes, master, yes, master," but as soon as that so-called slave church and preaching was over, they went into the hush harbors and they had real church where they used the Bible as a way to scheme to get free. So the point is you had some people who bought into the the white man's, the slave owner's uh, version of the Bible, which was not the Bible. They just they didn't even know how to read themselves. Ninety percent of the, the overseers couldn't read themselves. So then you had the people who really stole the Bible, and as many of them say, even Frederick Douglass, they stole their education. They stole. Nobody, nobody forced the Bible or reading and writing on a slave. Frederick said that education would make a bad slave, something to that effect. So this notion that white people, the slave master, wants to introduce Jesus to, to, the, to the slaves to make them a better slave, is absurd. You can't do it both ways. You can't say one minute you want them to learn about Jesus and read the Bible, and at the same time say, "Well, if they read the Bible and they and they learn how to read, period, we're going to kill them in the white that taught them." Can't have it both ways. I tend to be very, very clear and very, very specific and very, very contextual and very literal when I talk. Mm-hmm. And what I mm-hmm. said was, and I and I know it's true that the myth of the white Jesus has hurt the self-concept of black folks. That's what I said. It's the white. Now, okay. I think if it was like when, what, Richard, what Richard Allen was doing with an African-based Christian concept was helpful to us in terms of the power that was built in that. But mm-hmm. as you know, that's, that's been watered down. It ain't the same. Say it again? It ain't the same. I said, as you know, Richard Allen's church, and, 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 as he created it, don't exist. Right. Look, now the new God in the church is a dollar bill, unfortunately. Yep. It's about, yep. getting, you know, how to get money, how to get you know, how to save all, save your soul and get rid of all your problems. And I think yep. we should end this, end this show on that note because we agree with that point, and you have to come <laughs> back on, and you probably will be hosting a couple of my shows, hopefully you'll agree to do it. And, um, sure, why not? When we, when we have another hot topic about, you know, police brutality, you know, I would like you to be the go-to man. And um, thanks for entertaining me, uh, my thoughts, and letting me vent. And I appreciate <laughs> it. I really do. Not a, not a problem. I have to do a lot not of editing tonight. I'm going to edit this show, but... <laughs> I'll keep it for me and you. It'll be it'll be our keepsake. All yeah, right. Yeah. So you have a good All night. All right, sister. You do the okay. same. All right. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye.